Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Not saying these are bad people, they're probably not, but, but they just tend, they tend to spend more money, there tend to be more bond issues, there tend to be more problems. And so I, I think that at the local level, there's a bigger problem than we know because no one's really paying attention the way we used to. What happens when a large metropolitan daily folds or shrinks to the point where it's not able to cover local news in the way it once could? How can that newspaper continue to serve its audience and find new ways to sustain itself? Stick around. We may have a few ideas for you. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. David Haynes is editor of the Ideas Lab, a solutions journalism effort at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. He's here to talk about some of the things the lab's been up to. David, welcome to It's All Journalism. Hey, thanks a lot. Really good to be with you, Michael. Okay, so you know, let's let's actually start the conversation on sort of where we were talking before we put on the mics on. And, and you've been at the Milwaukee uh Journal Sentinel. I'm going to say Sentinel Journal at some point, but Journal Sentinel uh, <laughs> since 1984, 1984, 1994. Wow. 1994. Yeah. And so <laughs> things have changed a lot, I, I would imagine. Yeah, things have changed a whole lot. So I, I've been in uh, journalism since uh, newspaper work, uh, primarily since 1979. And, you know, I like to tell people that the first 25 years of my career, roughly to about 2003 or four or something like that, nothing changed. We were print-centric. We put out newspapers. Uh, I always had almost throughout my entire career was editing a page or two in a paper somewhere. And, you know, um, that's what we did. And then, but for the last 15 years or so of my career, everything has changed. And so I, you know, I meet people who retire a year or two ago, and they come back to the newsroom, they can't believe how we're doing things these days. It's so different. I think if you've been out of a newsroom, even six months to a year, things will have changed. We're just moving very rapidly to try to figure out the best way to deliver content news to people the way they want. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's, we haven't quite figured that out yet, but we're getting better. When we both started in, in journalism, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I graduated from college in the eighties, but really was doing freelance work until the, the mid nineties. At you know, at that time, we were sort of working in the in the the structures that were built by people before us, and the news delivery systems of the you know who've been of the people bef- who were before us, and and suddenly our whole industry sort of got thrust into this new environment. And it was, uh, you know, adapt or die sort of thing. Uh, some people adapted. Many people <laughs> died you know, philosophically or, or, or however you want to do it, uh, put it. But things you know, certainly have changed in the last 15 years, I, the last 20 years, actually, now. It's 2022. I know, and, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, I, you know, went, uh, I had a sort of a moment in 2010 where I, I you know, I asked myself what I wanted to do in five years. And I still wanted to be a journalist, but I understood that things were changing and they continue to change. When for you did it suddenly occur to you that I need to start looking at things differently? Well, I think as a newsroom, and I would just say we sort of all came to this aha moment together, but it became clear even as early as like 1999 or so that 
this thing we call the internet was going to be a disruptive factor in what we did. But it really didn't, I think, sink into most of us until we hit the uh, Great Recession of 2008. We lost uh, a lot of bodies out of the newsroom at that point. That was the beginning, really, really 2007 for us of cutbacks. We had 15 years of uh, buyouts or layoffs starting then. Uh, last year, we didn't have one, which was awesome. And we can talk more about that in a minute, if you'd like, about why that happened. But I think the start of that really made us see that we had to be something different. And we had to understand how to uh, deliver content to people the way they wanted it. I think it accelerated for us even more long about 2015, 2016, where politically you saw this big break in the country and this, you know, really credible, deeply ingrained polarization. And it became really clear that there were large swaths of our former audience or potential audience that just plain weren't listening or reading what we were publishing any longer. We didn't trust it if they were. And again, the technology had advanced to the point by that time that more and more people under the age of, say, 35 or 40 were getting all of their news from their phones through things pushed them to social media. And so that's when I think the really big adaptations occurred in the last five years, really, for us. Um, we became, around that time, we started saying we were digital first, and um, that's really true now. The, the printed edition of the journal Sentinel is a curation of the best stuff we've done, and it's not really very newsy anymore because we have very early deadlines, and we're spending all our time working on, not so much on the news side now, but for my new psychologists, working on getting the news out on our website and delivered to people over social media on their phones. And so that's really where I dated. Um, that first sort of aha moment, the late 90s, you know, we published the uh, Ken Starr's report on our website. I remember, when was that, 98 or so? Mm -hmm. That was like the first big thing we did on our website. But then, um, you know, around the time of the Great Recession, uh oh, we got to do more because we're losing bodies and you have to be more nimble. But then really about the time of the Trump sort of phenomenon and the populist movement, we're like, oh my God, this is really serious. And we had to get a lot more serious about it. And that's just accelerated over the last few years. Yeah. And, and I was, you know, when I started this podcast with, with two other people uh, in, you know, 2012, and we were kind of coming out of it looking, trying to be forward thinking about, you know, digital journalism. And at that time, we, we kind of didn't have a whole lot of hope for many of the big, you know, daily papers that were just dragging their feet and not yeah. making, you know, making the moves to, so that they would survive. So the fact that you, you at least were aware that something was going on and that, it, you know, because, but, you know, I can't tell you how many, com you know, conferences I went to in the, the first five years of the podcast where there were uh, publishers of, of, of weekly alternative papers who were saying, this is ridiculous. I don't know why you're telling me I need to switch over to digital revenue. This is ridiculous. I can still get display ads. I'm, I'm still able to do this, yeah. you know, and, and unfortunately, a lot of those people took a really long time to understand the, the gravity of this. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. And I think another aha moment for us was, I'm going to get the date wrong here. It might have been around 2017. Um, we went through what's called the table stakes process. Mm -hmm by the Knack Foundation, you may be aware of it. I think APIs yeah. developed to American yeah, we're, Press Institute. APIs are um, uh, 
content partner and we we produce the better news podcast for them and, and we talk about table stakes etc yeah you originally came yeah, to yeah, us yeah. as a recommendation from them but anyway go on yeah yeah yeah. we were the second round of news organizations that went through that and what we learned from that one is we've got to be way more strategic and stop throwing just stuff to the wall and see if it sticks and try to be really really thoughtful about using our resources to the best of our ability toward the end of developing um, a coherent strategy for digital subscriptions. And so that's where we're at. Uh, we became part of Gannett, I think it was 2016. We were around that same time. And frankly, the Journal Sentinel has been a real leader within Gannett in getting the corporation, the entire group to adopt that strategy. And it's, I wanna say that it's successful and it is, but we, you got to keep working it. You know, we're doing pretty well. Uh, we've probably tripled the number of digital subscriptions we have without divulging too many, you know, numbers that maybe I shouldn't divulge. But but we've kind of plateaued, and it's, so I think we've got some of the low hanging fruit, and we need to figure out how to bust through that plateau. I think we're working really hard on that. But um, a part of that, uh, our strategy is more what we would call premium stories or subscriber only stories. Um, with the idea that, you know, we're not charging that much for a subscription. You can always get a deal and our content needs to be supported by readers. And so um, I, I bring that up because I think that was a key sort of decision, strategic decision that was made by us and then by Gannett that is beginning to bear fruit, but it is a, it's kind of a slog, to be honest. It, it takes a lot of effort and time I think we'll get there. I think there are great examples around the country of news organizations that are, are getting there with a digital subscription model. Um, but it's probably not the only bucket of revenue you need too. You know, you need traditional revenue um, from our print subscribers, which we still have thousands, print advertising. And we believe very strongly that we also need philanthropic uh, revenue to support the mission of the organization. It's one thing to sell a product, which you're doing with a subscription. It's another to have donors who support the mission of the organization, who are interested in democracy, or interested in good journalism. And that's been a, an effort within our newsroom. Now we have a task force on a member of the team that's on that to try to figure out how to do a better job, a la you know, the, the uh, Sale Times, which has been a huge leader in that area. Yeah, and the other thing I'd throw in there is events. I know that um, yeah. a number Great of um, a number of newspapers have uh, you know seen that that is a way to sort of generate revenue. And you know, and, and I talked to some people um, from the LA Times who, you know, during COVID, they sort of ramped up their their video end and began doing these live stream events of things that that uh, they had previously done you know, live. And, you know, for them, it was, it was just sort of a natural progression and, you know, they learned some things and they were able to change things around. But anyway, you know, and it's funny, I, you know, I did a, I, I had the opportunity on behalf of the state department to do a presentation the other night to some journalists in, in, in Malaysia. Uh, and it was about um, misinformation, et cetera. And so I spoke mm -hmm. a little bit about that, but when, when I got to, we get the end, they're asking questions. Well, the last question I got was, you know, there's all this you know, stuff that's coming out of Ukraine and, 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 and Russia, and it's difficult, you know, if we're talking about fact checking, you know, it's difficult to, to check facts. 
And it's also very expensive to do that. And, and mm -hmm. so the question was, you know, how do you, how can you come up with something to pay for fact checking? And I was just, you know, okay, you know, that's, that's the, that's the key here kind of, because it's all this, I feel is kind of the same thing. It's, you know, recognizing and creating content that people want and, and then getting them to pay for it and coming up with a model that, that's sustainable and then selling that idea to people. You know, I think at one point there was a, there was sort of an aha moment, I think, in our culture when suddenly we realized, and it probably had a lot to do with when, when Netflix went online, where people were kind of like, oh, yeah, there's there, maybe it's a it's a good thing if I, if I pay for stuff online. But, you know, early days, there was this idea that you could never get people to pay for things. But, you know, that that is something that's happening. Right. And, I, you know, I, I think that when you're evolving like we have in a disruptive industry, it's like driving down the road 100 miles an hour and trying to engine at the same time. And, and so it, I, I do have some sympathy for those publishers who were print centric publishers trying to figure out the next, you know, the next move. They were still making a lot of money off the old right. uh, model. And so it was hard to imagine why they would want to change. But, you know, they weren't very forward looking, most of them. You know, and so you, you mentioned events. I think that's a really interesting idea that I don't think we've tapped to the extent that we could. We've sort of had our lunch eaten by other organizations in our markets who are better at that than we are. But I think it's it's a real area that, you know, we have on our new staff in Milwaukee and across Wisconsin. So we operate uh, with Gannett's 11 markets in Wisconsin. We operate as a group, sort of one big newsroom, really. There's 200 journalists around the state, about 100 in Milwaukee and 100 outstate. And we, we have the best journalists in Wisconsin, no question about it. And so they're smart. They are uh, really accomplished. They know their stuff. They're experts in their fields. And so I, I just can't believe you can't create something around that, you know. But it takes it takes a, a willingness to do it. It take, frankly it takes a marketing push too, and some expertise and infrastructure that we don't really have on the ground here so much anymore. Yeah, and it takes. Well, I guess there's an advantage in the sense that you're part of a corporation and you know if they were made a decision that this is something they wanted to get get behind there's a you know possibility that they would put money behind it one would hope but you know the other thing we, we were talking about before we turn on the mics was actually you know wisconsin has been at kind of the center of a lot of the change that's also gone on in, in our political environment uh, the division that we're, we're experiencing now, uh, a lot of the the things that, you know, that Wisconsin um, has been dealing with uh, over the last 20 years are, are, I don't know, precursors or at least, you know, big stories that are emblematic of uh, the division in, in the country. And it's, a, you know, I, the thing that, two things. First, the, the idea that the internet disrupted us, yes, but but I think what's important, and I'm glad you brought it up, is the economic downturn in, in 2009 or 2008 2009 really kicked us all in the knees. So at the moment when you know maybe we should have been ramping up, we couldn't, or you know it, all we were really kind of focused on was like, well, how can we get the revenue back to where it was? But at the same time, the digital industry was changing, but then also uh, the political. Uh, climate was changing. Right, right. I think those two things are intertwined for sure. Uh, the political climate in Wisconsin has been a 
sort of microcosm, I would argue, of the rest of the country in many ways. And, uh, you know, I dated really, there are precursors even before that, but I've been here since 1994. Um, at the time I arrived, uh, Tommy Thompson was the governor, four-term governor, much loved Republican, but kind of a big spending Republican, Mike Dukakis, the uh, former presidential candidate and governor of Massachusetts, once put his armor on Tommy and said, you're my favorite governor when, when <laughs> happened today. Um, and, you know, he was a charismatic leader who uh, was able to work across the aisle and would get literally, a, at least in one election, got 60% of the vote in Wisconsin. Again, wow. not something that you would ever see happen today. But um, after eight years of Democratic control of all three branches or two branches of government, both houses in the legislature, 2010, the Republicans swept to power. Scott Walker, who later ran for president, um, was from the Milwaukee area. We had covered him pretty closely when he was uh, county executive in Milwaukee. We found him to be, although pretty far right in his views and particularly evangelical right, uh, he worked well with the county board, which it's not partisan, but they were basically all Democrats. Um, and so they were checking one another. But once Walker came to power and had really no check because the Republicans controlled the legislature, they were able to get to a wish list of things that they had had on their agenda for a long time. And one of those included curtailing to the extent they could the power of the state employee unions, both the teachers union and the state service workers. And they did that by essentially decertifying the unions. That was a huge, huge fight. It's known as Act 10 because that was the, the actual bill number. But what that did here was create an imbalance in political power in the state. The Democrats lost their foot soldiers out in the field because those unions were decimated. And they didn't ever really recover. And the other thing that happened is the Republicans were able to gerrymander the state in 2010. So if you're going to lose an election, the lesson here is don't let you lose an election and <laughs> you're ending at zero. <laughs> No. So if you're Democrats, if you're Republicans in the state of Illinois you would, or Maryland, you would say the same thing because the Democrats did a pretty good number on the Republicans in terms of gerrymandering in those states. But that had the effect of locking in political power for the Republicans for 10 years. And now we're still fighting over the current maps that are being negotiated. But Supreme Court just sent them back to our state Supreme Court for the current round. But the Republicans will have control of the state probably for another 10 years. So think about that, 20 years of one party control. And along with all the other things that are happening, the populist movement that's happening nationwide, even internationally now, that's happening here. There's a researcher at UW-Madison, Kathy Kramer, Catherine Kramer, a political scientist, but also a social scientist who spent seven years interviewing people in the Northwoods of Wisconsin, Northern Wisconsin. She saw the Scott Walker phenomenon coming before he ran because she saw people who were disconnected, disaffected, who felt left out, ignored, and not listened to. And that's also true in communities of color. For example, in the city of Milwaukee, people feel much the same way. They also have many of the same needs, but you would think of what a political party could connect those two, but that's, that hasn't happened because we've become so, become so tribal. At any rate, all of that place is, is at play here in our state, and it's indicative of what I have, my son and daughter both live in North Carolina. 
Same kind of things are happening in North Carolina. It's happening in many other states as well, where you have the bifurcation and extreme polarization. And and then we, you know, we start dealing with the, um, you know, the loss of large dailies of of um, of many, you know, community papers closing down, and no longer able to, you know, serve one of our the primary roles of of journalist of of being a watchdog on on the government a huge um, problem which is a huge problem and it doesn't help that that makes you know because we're overworked and uh understaffed and un, you know under we don't have the tools that we can to 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 build something that's sustainable it's pretty easy for people to just dismiss us uh from the conversation that, well it's, it's actually worse than that too uh, michael it's you know there are small newspapers still operating in many of these communities we've lost a number of newspapers in wisconsin even in communities where there are still newspapers operating they're not always covering all the, the meetings like they used to so they're not acting as a check accountability check on city council members, county boards, sheriffs, you know, older people. And there's, there's some pretty good evidence that when no one's watching, yeah, that, um, not saying these are bad people, but they're probably not, but, but they just tend, they tend to spend more money. There tend to be more bond issues. There tend to be more problems. And so I, I think that at the local level, there's a bigger problem than we know because no one's really paying attention the way we used to. Yeah. And I know that from my personal experience, uh, being a, a local reporter for patch that, you know, people have sent me emails thanking me for, you know, covering whatever particular meeting or, you know, following up on a land use issue and sort of bringing certain things to light. And it was like, it was a type of thank you of thank you because I've seen nothing like this in a long time. It's not to toot my horn, but it's just to sort of show right. that something we used to, that what was, you know, the bread and butter of lot of what a lot of us were doing is just not being done. And it's scary uh, because what was funny was the one story I wrote again, I'm not trying to toot my horn, but one story I wrote actually kind of undid uh, something that was going to happen that the, that the, that the lawmakers, the local lawmakers all of a sudden realized that people were paying attention to them. And so then they backed off what they were going to do. And, you know, not that that's what was what my goal was, but if, you know, if someone, if there was not someone there who was shedding that light on something, uh, an, an issue would have gone forward that a lot of people were, um, you know, raising hell about that, 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 that they didn't want to happen. So I'm not trying to take credit, but it was just, it, it concerns me just because, you know, these, these aren't necessarily bad people who are making these decisions. I don't think they're corrupt, but if no one's looking, <laughs> things will happen that may not be, or may be bad in the long run. Uh, I think everyone needs an editor. Uh, and I think every uh, city council member needs someone to keep an eye on. It's just simple. It's accountability. And, they won't necessarily keep an eye on themselves. You know, who's raising their hand when they go into a closed session illegally? Right. That happens all the time. And so we're trying to figure out how to, I think we, as an industry, we need to figure it out. I, as a society, I think we need to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also yeah. that, you know, the, the idea of, um, you know, the spread of misinformation and, and yeah. how can we counter that with, you know, the good reporting that we're doing or we're trying to do with our limited resources. 
But anyway, I brought you on here to talk about Idea Labs. Sure, sure, sure. But tell me about that. How did that come about? Yeah, let me give you this, uh, a, a relatively short history of Ideas Lab. So um, I have a long history in news. I've been an editor at several papers and a reporter for many years and you know, covered business and sports and education. And I was looking for something different to do in 20, and I want to get back to writing more or less full time. So in 2006, I asked if I could apply for an opening on the editorial board at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. And they said, yes, I got the job, became deputy editor to a good friend and pal of mine, Ricardo Pimentel, who is now back in town. So it's great to have him back. Uh, he helped me learn how to do that. And I had a ball. At the time, in 2006, we had 11 people on our editorial board, five writers, two cartoonists. Uh, it was some of the most intellectually invigorating uh, work I've ever done. But that began to change the very next year in 2007, where we lost one or two people. And by 2017, we were down with myself and another colleague, my old pal, Ernie Franzen. Ernie took a buyout, and it was me. I was at and so what was I going to do? Have conversations with myself. I, you know, I, we didn't know how, what that was going to look like. So the more my boss and I talked about it, the more we decided to really take a deep dive into our analytics and see whether the opinion work we were publishing at the time was connecting. And it became pretty clear that the work we were doing then wasn't working very well. We weren't really connecting with an audience. And I think there's a number of reasons for that, which I won't go into, but but, but it, that was a fact. And so I got in touch with the Solutions Journalism Network, Tina Rosenberg in particular, who had worked with our newsroom back about 2013 or 14, right after they were formed, SJM was formed. And we had wanted to do more solutions work then in connection with projects, which we still do. We do a ton of that in connection with projects. And she was very, very helpful. SJM has been a great friend and, and supporter of our work. And so I started doing solution stories. And by um, that went on for about a year. And then start of 2019, we developed a small staff for Ideas Lab. Again, almost entirely focused on solutions work. But as often happens in our business, that effort kind of stalled because we had another round of buyouts. We had a reporter go on a project. We had another reporter who went to another paper and wasn't in place. So at the end of 2019, a staff of five was down to me and another reporter. So, I see a pattern. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, just how things go, you have to iterate, you have to keep working it. And so start of 2020, we had a, a community engagement project with our public radio and TV stations that was looking at how could we better support and provide information to underserved communities in Milwaukee. We got a lot of help from API with that. Uh, Michelle Ferrier from Florida A&M University. I think she's left there now, but that's where she was at at the time. Yeah. It was a big help to us in getting that going. And so we focused a lot on community outreach, some solutions work. And then I began to see in 2020 that we were going to, as a pandemic hit, that we were going to need to provide more of a forum for people who really wanted to talk about these incredibly big issues that were arising in Wisconsin and elsewhere. You know, the racial justice movement, we had a horrible outbreak of violence in Kenosha that made national news. We had the pandemic. We had this election conducted during the pandemic, which was ridiculous. Only four polling places opening the entire city of Milwaukee. Wow. You know, obviously tragedy related to the pandemic. And by the way, we had this thing called an election happening in the end of 2020. So 
all of that was going on and we decided we had to become more of a hybrid. And so that's kind of where we are still at. Um, we publish a fair amount of opinion. Um, we also publish in the Ideas Lab solutions work. So a couple of weeks ago, I published a story from the South Bend Tribune that looked at how in that city, small community funds are funding new development of housing, which is and other development, which is helping to reinvigorate the city. So really interesting story that has some resonance with Milwaukee. We do some uh, uh, what I would call contextualizing of the news. So I have a friend who's a journalist in Ukraine who um, escaped from Kiev under bombardment. And I asked her if she'd be interested in writing that for us. And she did. She was a wonderful 100-inch story about wow. how she and her colleagues at stopfake.org were continuing to fact check the Russian propaganda while escaping the city. And she's now in Western Ukraine and safe, at least for now. So that's another example of the kind of story we would do. I formed, uh, along with my boss, we reformed an editorial board as an ad hoc group of five, six people who are top editors around our state and um, are not editing in the news side. It's tough these days because we don't have the staff to have people who only do that. We only do editorials when we feel like we have a special uh, authority. So on a First Amendment issue, on open government issues, and on issues of democracy. So when our senior Senator Ron Johnson basically denied the fact of the election and later denied that the vaccines work, uh, we've written a number of editorials calling him to account on that. Uh, but we don't do many. When we do, it's my job to help convene the editorial board and discuss that and then, and then write it. So bottom line is Ideas Lab does basically three things. We do community outreach through our Listen to MKE project and other events that we do. Um, we do um, editorials and opinion where needed. And then we do a combination of solutions journalism and Again, what I would call sort of Vox.com kind of contextualizing the news. That sounds like something, and that's something that's, that's serving your community, sort of going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, changing the the way you do your job, the way the, the, um, the paper um, sort of interacts with the community. Yeah, we feel like it's really important to, and Ideas Lab, we chose that name for a reason. We need to focus on good ideas ideas that will help solve problems in the community. Even the op-eds that we accept most of the time, we try to focus on solutions. They're not solution stories per se. They often are advocating for something and a good solution story doesn't do that, but, but they are at least focused on a solution. But at the same time, we also have to figure out how to get audiences that aren't looking at anything we do to connect with uh, us. And so one thing we just started doing, and you may find this interesting, um, there's a woman um, who's from Wisconsin originally, Kristen Bry, who was doing, um, she's a comedian, uh, an actress who has been in a couple of sitcoms that you'd recognize. When she, when she was 16, she moved to LA and got involved. She's like 35 now. She was doing stand-up when the clubs closed during the pandemic, came home to Wisconsin, ostensibly to do a, a documentary, which because of everything that was happening, she didn't really get going. But she started this website called As Goes Wisconsin, which is just, a lot of it is just short videos with her riffing on the news. 
and she's great, smart, funny, and engaging. And so one of our editors, Rachel Piper, had this idea, I wish I'd had. She said, let's call her up and see if she wants to, you know, work with us. And lo and behold, she did. Uh, we brought her on as a freelancer in November. Uh, we hired her as a part-timer just a few weeks ago, and she's now part of the Ideas Lab. She does opinion-focused um, uh, videos, but if you look at them, they're just really smart, funny, explanatory videos. Like, what's gerrymandering? Here's how it works. You know, here's a hundred uh, bottle caps, beer bottle caps. Here's something Wisconsin can understand. <laughs> if you arrange them differently, here's how you would gerrymander those bottle caps. So um, that's been a way that we can make a play on TikTok and on Instagram. We we put our videos up on our website too, but but it's really a social media play to connect with a different audience in the hopes that eventually we can get them to see the value of what we do. It's interesting. You think back, you know, over, you know, 10, 15 years about, you know, all those polls that were going on and people saying, you know, that they got all their news from Jon Stewart or, or Stephen Colbert. Yeah. And it's true. I mean, it's, it is it's true. sad, but true. But, you know, when, when they're able to, put some um, reporting behind it, uh, those can actually be quite, quite informative and, and, you know, put things in a perspective that I think people are willing to approach. I mean, sometimes, you know, you, you say, well, you should be reading this, you know, you should be reading The Nation or you should be reading The National Review. And most people are going to go, nah, I don't think so. But, you know, things that sort of via memes, via video, via Instagram, um, that sort of spark those ideas. Uh, I think are valuable. If there's a way that you can sort of tap into that and make that part of your mission. You know, I was just going to say with Kristen's work, her scripts are roughly 200 words in length. So very short, but we fact check them rigorously. We work with her. She does a little bit of her own reporting. She's not a journalist, but she's learning. And I think we'll get much, much better at that piece of it as we go forward. She's really relying on the reporting staff and so while our staff doesn't get involved at all in the production or what she's going to do, we do fact check with them. We'll check facts with them um, from her scripts. So we're pretty rigorous about what we're doing. We want to make sure that there's a, a solid foundation supporting anything that she puts out. And again, with the idea is it's our credibility on the line, but we do need to figure out ways to connect in an inviting, engaging way. When you say the Ideas Lab is is writing occasional editorials, I mean, it does does the paper put out have regular editorial page? We do not. Um, we have in in our line we have a um, a landing page for Ideas Lab where all of that content uh, can be found, and it's clearly labeled whether it's an opinion or an editorial. If it is, mm -hmm. um, and in our in our printed paper. The Ideas Lab has four to six pages on Sundays only. Uh, during the week, no, there's no um, there's no opinion content in the paper during the week. No opinion page. Yeah, no. I and the one of the one of the things I know that people who were in discussing issues around trusting newspapers, they don't they didn't trust news, is because they didn't want opinion; they wanted facts. Yeah. And whereas. You know, probably when you when you started um, in Seattle, you know, back in the 90s, you know, you know, every day there was going to be an editorial or there was go there were going to be things that were going to be written about every day. But now we're in sort of a different place. And so that you have a, a website, a newsroom like yours that 
the editorial is, I guess what you could say is you're acting as a de facto editorial page, but you're not doing it with the same maybe regularities that had been done in the past. Oh, no, not at all. No, we, when I first joined the editorial board in 2006, we were doing two or three editorials a day. Yeah. With staff of five or six people to do it, uh, to write those. We thought that was a heavy lift, right? And it, it kind of was. But we use the editorial, the institutional voice of the newspaper, very, very sparingly. It's a tool in the toolbox. But again, it's only a tool that we pull out. We feel like we have special authority or there's some kind of risk, democratic risk that we think we need to write about to point out as an accountability tool. So one thing we did last year was uh, Ron Johnson sent us an op-ed in response to a previous editorial where we had called on him to resign over his denial of the 2020 election. And the, the op-ed was just littered with disinformation and outright lies. So we fact-checked it rigorously and we footnoted it. And we published that as a full page in the printed paper. And then we created a system where you could click on the footnote and go to our response. And that's the kind of thing that, so that's based on editorial. It's our opinion, uh, but it's also based on what the facts show to be correct. And so we're trying to figure out ways to creatively use that opinion arm, that opinion tool, but use it very sparingly. Because, you know, look, I think opinion has been commoditized. You pull out your phone, you got opinion all over your phone, right? Right. Look at your Twitter feed. And so it's just, it doesn't make sense to, to do that as much as we want i you know i get why you would you would publish in online and and then have footnotes to it but were there concerns that you would just be amplifying this um these falsehoods well we we saw it it, it's a great point and i I think that's a question that our politifact team faces every single day in glencamp the washington post you know um, but you really don't have any choice. I think you have to set the record straight based on the facts. And when you have a powerful individual, he was, until they lost control of Senate, he was a chair um, of the Homeland Security Committee in the U.S. Senate. There's a very powerful individual who is spreading falsehoods and innuendo and disinformation constantly. I think you have no choice but to fact check that and to set a standard. That's what we tried to do. I guess the way I was asking that question was just the act of publishing it with that, with or without the the context. Were you concerned that you would be spreading disinformation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's I, I understand the way we published it. I had no concerns about that, but I would not have published it at all had we not done that. But we wanted to do two things. We wanted wanted to show what he was saying. We wanted to show why it was wrong and provide numerous in-depth facts and and reporting that would back that up. And we were trying to make a point really there. But so I don't don't have concerns about that because I, I think that the way it was published, both in print and online, made it very clear, you know, what our position was. Now, look, there are people who are, you know, supporters of Senator Johnson, who will never believe anything we say. Mm. And, and I can't do anything about that. But to people who are open and reasonable to open to facts and, and reasonable, then our hope is that 
they will at least look at that and make a decision on their own. Yeah. And I think it's probably the smart and the responsible way to do it because, you know, think of the alternatives. We're not going to run it. Well, it's going to get published somewhere. And, you know, that just provides fuel for fodder that, you know, your paper is the bad guy that you're not, you know, helping to you know spread this information, even though it's, it, it's false. So I think. So on the other hand, you might be interested in hearing this. Uh, Senator Johnson was used our editorials, and I believe he used that one, the one we talked about, the footnoted op-ed, as a fundraising plea. So he must <laughs> was going to connect with his audience, too. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. If, so he can say, well, you know, it's almost as if there's no way to win. Not that we're in here to win. We're in here yeah. to, to, to be informers. That's right. Uh, of, um, uh, and providing context for, for That's right. to make their decisions. Uh, back in 1994, did, did you, would you have ever imagined that this is what be where your job and what your job would be at this point? No, there's no way you, you could have known. Um, the, so it's, it's been interesting. We had way more resources in 1994. When, uh, when I came to 94, I worked for the Milwaukee Sentinel. The two papers merged in 1995 and we had a staff of 300 people. We now have a staff of about 90 in our newsroom. Um, and so big change there. And, you know, the time I came, we were a print-centric paper. There was, well, the internet, we didn't have an internet. We, 96 or so, maybe, I think we were, we were with Prodigy Services, if you remember, <laughs> for a while. Um, that was the start of it, but it was very, very small operation and divorced from the newsroom. It was like a separate thing that, you know, that wasn't integrated with the newsroom. But uh, I would just answer the question this way. I, I have had more fun in the last 10, 15 years than I had in the first 25 years of my career because things are changing so rapidly and you have to, you have to iterate and change and evolve. And, you know, it's, it's hard work. Um, but it's also really interesting work. And what I continue to find is that our readers, the people who have stuck with us or the new readers we've gotten uh, in recent years, really appreciate good journalism. Um, you hear that all the time. And so there's a market for what we do. There always will be. Um, it's just figuring out how to do it in a way that gets it to people the way they want it at the time they want it. And I, I could not agree with you more. I, uh, my own personal experience, my, my third or fourth act, whatever this is, it, it has been much more rewarding professionally than, than those, first, those first two or three acts. Um, David, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, google play and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found if you'd like to help us grow our podcast like and share our episodes on social media look for us on facebook instagram and twitter it takes a lot of people to create an episode of it's all journalism nicola grisco produced this episode amber healy wrote our web content 
Nick Capre wrote our theme music, Lamia Brust helped with our booking, Steph Thomas is our social media manager, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic. But today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton to adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride, purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20.